0: Let's bow our heads together for a word of prayer for confession make sure we're in fellowship and and uh, ready to study God's word and then we'll uh we'll begin. Father, we thank you for the opportunity we have to come together as a body of believers to study your word. We realize that the, this is the most significant thing that we do with our lives is to take the time to study your word to have our lives transformed by it. We pray that as we study tonight under the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit, that we will truly understand the things that we're studying and accept them, receive them, that they may transform our, our thinking, that we might be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. We pray this in His name. Amen. Before we begin in our study in James 2, I want to read a... Um, Letter I received today from email from Jim Myers. Jim Myers is a missionary we uh, who's spoken at this church and we pray for him on a regular basis at prayer meeting. And um, you know tonight it was I was afraid everybody thought we had the plague going on here the way we had attendance at prayer meeting this evening. But we need to make that a priority, too. We had like four people show up tonight. It's been sparse the last couple. I go out of town for a week. That does not give everybody the excuse to to blow off Wednesday night. This is going to happen on occasion, and um, we've got some other things that we're going to try to do to uh, fill in the gap when I'm gone on a Wednesday night. But um, in the meantime, we need to not let it, tear up our schedule just because we miss one Wednesday night. We ought to be mature enough not to trip all over ourselves in terms of our schedule. Anyway, Jim wrote, and I thought you'd be interested in hearing about his his ministry over there. He's living in Kiev, Kiev they pronounce it, in Ukraine, and he's been over there. He was originally with Jody Brown in Belarus in Magilo and then he went independent about two or three years ago and is down and in, in, in having a tremendous ministry. He teaches in a Bible college and in a seminary, plus a number of other independent things that he's doing. And uh, this is just a taste of the kind of schedule he has. We just returned from a a two-and-a-half-week trip to the capital city of Kazakhstan, Almaty, formerly called Alma-Ata. This is a beautiful city with a mountain backdrop, highest peak almost 5,000 meters, which is more than 16,000 feet. It is a city of more than a million population, but of mixed origins. This was originally a Russian city and not a Kazakh settlement. The Kazakhs are a different race, Oriental Mongol of some kind, but there are many Kazakhs in Almaty now. There are also many Koreans there who were brought in during the Russo-Japanese War. Most of them now speak Russian as their first language. The signs are either in Russian, Kazakh, or both. The Kazakh language is an interesting sounding language with lots of gutturals like German, but with an oriental lilt, although it is not a tonal language. It sounds very different from the sibilant Russian we are used to hearing. It is also interesting that they used to write it in Arabic letters, but then switched to Cyrillic some years back. That's the Russian alphabet, is the Cyrillic alphabet. Now they're talking about changing it to Roman letters like we use. They certainly know how to confuse things. I taught at the Kazakhstan Evangelical Christian Seminary. This was started by a Korean who is a naturalized American citizen. He is a promoter and has raised money in both Korea and America for the work in Kazakhstan. They have bought two different pieces of property and have two separate campuses, one that teaches in Russian and the other that teaches in Kazakh. I taught two and a half hours each day at each school. Five hours a day is a good stretch, but still not uncomfortable since I was prepared. I would leave the apartment at 8 in the morning and get home around 5 in the evening. The students were eager and a pleasure to teach. I especially enjoyed the Kazakhs. Eight years ago, according to one Kazakh woman, there were no Kazakh Christians. Now there are hundreds. Good start. The students have a real desire to take the gospel to their own people and are not bashful about evangelizing. There seems to be a growing response to the good news, although there is some resistance which is related to politics and race. The Kazakhs think that Christianity is a Russian religion. Since their relationship with Russians have not always been harmonious, they tend to reject those things associated with Russians. For many centuries, the Kazakhs have been under Muslim influence. While few are practicing Muslims, they think the Kazakhs are Muslim while Russians are Christians. Also due to the Muslim influence, Kazakhs are offended by the cross, not only the message, which is foolishness to those who are perishing, but also the symbol, which they regard as pagan or even obscene. So I spent some time dealing with the cross, the foolishness and offensiveness of it, but not to be ashamed of it, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. There's not a complete Bible in their language. In the Old Testament, they have only Genesis and about six of the Psalms. In the New Testament, they have Luke and John, Acts, the Pauline Corpus, minus minus Second Corinthians. They don't have Hebrews, James, Jude, or Revelation. This made for some interesting teaching. Of course, those who can read Russian, many but not all, can read in their Russian Bibles, which is really bad. I mean, their translation of the Russian Bibles is they translate righteousness with the Russian word for truth, which is really going to get you messed up. Um, and there are all kinds of other errors. The Russian Bible is terrible. He goes on, he says, a complete New Testament is supposedly going to be printed this year in Kazakh. Unfortunately, the translation they have is not really a good one, but it is better than none at all, obviously. But I was trying to teach Ephesians and the concept of positional truth. I gave them an assignment of going through the epistle and listening every occurrence of in Christ or in him. They found it not once in their text, not once. It seems that the translator had tried to find a, quote, dynamic equivalent, a la the NIV, and came up with something like, with Christ. So we spent time going to a couple of dozen passages and teaching the concept. This was new and exciting for them. My interpreter asked me to write a lesson and send it to her so she could translate it and distribute it. They also requested written lessons on some other topics as well. I preached at a Korean church, Russian language, a home church, Kazakh speaking, and at the very first ever Kazakh Christian church. The Kazakh churches are interesting in that they don't have chairs to sit on. You sit on mats on the floor in a circle. They love to sing and sing with gusto. Much of their Christian music is Western-style praise choruses. See, we're infecting the rest of the world with our garbage. Western-style praise choruses with Kazakh words, but they also have a few newly written songs using their own harmony and melody patterns. Please pray for Pastor Malik and wife Jana. They are two incredible believers who are wholeheartedly committing to serving our Lord Jesus Christ and very receptive to doctrine. They have an independent church, which they named Grace Church. They understand the principle. I have been invited to come back. Perhaps we can return next fall or next spring. We will have to see how the Lord prepares our way as we approach the new millennium. They told me, Jim, you must not come for just two weeks. That is too little teaching. You must come for at least half a year. I don't have any real desire to go to live there. So, you know, this is a real mission. If any of you all feel the call of the Spirit right now to go, there's an opportunity for you in Kazakhstan. I don't have any real desire to go to live there at this time, but there's a wide open door to people with hungry hearts. I just can't tell you how exciting it is to be serving the Lord here at this time. I wish you could come and get a little taste of it. Every time he writes, he's begging me to come over there. And um, I haven't felt the call of the Lord just just yet, although I would love to go over there. I've been over there once and would love to go back, but I just uh, don't think now's the time. So that said, he has a few other personal notes to me there, but that gives you the gist of what he's doing how the Lord's using him. And he just has a tremendous opportunity there. And Ukraine is quite different from Russia. Russia has all kinds of problems now. And Belarus has problems. And Ukraine has economic and political problems, but they're very Western-oriented, pro-U.S., and very open to the gospel, and no, no uh, restraints whatsoever there. So that's from Jim Myers, and we need to continue to remember him in prayer. Let's open our Bibles now to James chapter 2. James chapter 2. Now, the more I am trying to get into this second chapter of James, the more I am aware that this is a very significant passage that is overlooked and mishandled when it is handled, but most of the time. And there is some tremendous doctrine here, and we're all familiar with the fact, or should be familiar with the fact, that starting down in verse 14, we come into a very much debated section of the epistle, which is the relationship of faith to works. But what's interesting about this, if you lay out the structure of James 14, and I keep... I'm slowly working our way into this because I'm trying to nail down a number of concepts as we go into this. And as I said in my uh, when we started uh, the last two or three days since I've been back and have been on all these antihistamines, my brain's rather fuzzy and I just can't. I sit there and go, "Oh yeah, there's a real important doctrine there," but you know, my mind just won't quite get around it. So. Um, I'm just kind of slow with this right now, and there's some really good stuff here and some great doctrines, and I want to really handle this very carefully when we get there, so we're just approaching it slowly in terms of some of the issues that we have to look at. But I want you to notice that in terms of the broad overview, see, when you're doing Bible study, there's something called the hermeneutical circle, and for those of you who are interested in hermeneutics. This is, it's like a spiral. And uh, I think one of you mentioned that you have a book by Roy Zuck on biblical hermeneutics, which is quite good. And Roy was a great teacher at Dallas Seminary on Bible study methods. But um, uh, you start off and you do your exegesis and analysis of a passage. You start looking at it in terms of the words that are used. You get into the original language. You break it down in terms of the grammar and the syntax, the uh, uh, lexicography and study the meaning of the words. And then you move back out and you begin to relate it to the overall context. And in the overall context, first you have a sentence. Then from that sentence, you have a collection of sentences in terms of a paragraph. And then from that paragraph, you move on up to what may be a subsection or section section of the epistle. And so you have to relate your 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 details, your your individual words or concepts that you find at the at the detailed analytic analytical level back up here to your subsection, section, division, and overall message of the book. You know, every book has a every every verse has a context. And one of the things that we, we learned years ago is that a, a text uh, without a context is a pretext. And that's so often the case and you find people yanking verses out of context to substantiate whatever uh, crazy notion or screwball doctrine they've come up with and so they haven't gone through this process. But see, then what happens is after you come back up and you relate things in terms of the overall uh, message of the book. See, down here you're doing what's called analysis, analysis and as you go up into broader and broader context, you begin to do synthesis and you relate things together in a broad, general whole. But then you have to go back down, and you work your way back down to the paragraph level, and then to the to the sentence structure, and then back down to to your exegesis. Because you always have to let the the um, your your overall context is going to um, help inform your. Uh, uh, your individual meanings and how you may make certain choices once you get into the text. Now, at this level here, when you get up here, you get subsection, section, and then you're also dealing with the overall message of the book in the New Testament. And then, of course, your broader context to that is the New Testament itself, and the broader context to that is the Bible itself, where you're comparing. And at this level here, you're going to be comparing Scripture with Scripture. At this level here, within the message of a book, you have to, orient things to, to other passages where where James is writing. Uh, if you're dealing with Pauline letters, like in Galatians, Paul may use a phrase a certain way, whereas John may not use it that way at all. Uh, John may have a, a certain way in which he uses some words and some phrases that is different from the way Peter or James uses uses that word or phrase. So we have to look at it in terms of individual books and then relate it to the overall. And then this is also controlled by a systematic theology, which in turn then relates back down the spiral to the individual details. So you have to go through this process whenever you are analyzing or studying any any epistle in the scriptures. And I say all of that to, to build up to understanding the relationship of this chapter. Starts off with a a command in verse. Uh, in chapter 2, verse 1, My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism or with an attitude of prejudice. And then you have an illustration that comes in with the rich man that comes in and, and the uh, usher there is, doesn't have any doctrine. He's operating on a false scale of values and he's going to kowtow to the wealthy guy who we find out when we come down to verse 7 uh down to verse six and seven is that this guy's oppressing him and dragging him into court and, and he's uh he's not a, a believer, he's just uh and so the usher is impressed with his position and power and his possessions and not with um, who he is as as an individual. So there's no spirituality or spiritual concepts informing the scale of values of the usher. Consequently he's creating problems and and James uses all of this to illustrate a principle, and that is the principle related to Leviticus 19.18, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, which is quoted in verse 8. Verse 8 is, is what this whole passage is, it builds to and develops from. So everything up to verse 8 leads to it, and then after that is a development of it, an application of it, and its relationship to law. And then it comes down to about verse 12, and then we're gonna, it stops there, and then verse 13 shifts, and we get in, and really that's where the paragraph break comes, I believe, is between 12 and 13. Now, look at what happens in verse 14. 14 introduces the next subject. So you have, I don't know what it is, I stand up here with this thing dry, open and dry, and it runs out of ink. Okay, 1 to 13 deals with the issue of Partiality, which is just one aspect of the application of unconditional love. That's what this is all about. Then you have a shift at verse 14 into a different subject, which is going to be the relationship of faith which here is not only the operation of the faith rest drill, but what you believe, doctrine in your soul. What use is it, my brethren, if a man says he has faith or doctrine, but he has no application? That's the sense of works here, application. It's it's the mirror to hearing and doing in the first part of this, this, this division. But he has no application. Can that faith deliver him? And then he gives an illustration in 15 through 17. If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and any of you says to them, go in peace and be warmed and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? So you see that illustration of supplying the need of somebody in a situation of being financially destitute is similar to the illustration of the poor and wealthy back here in verses 1 through 13. So he then goes from 14... And then verses 15 through 17 are back in in an illustration related to the first part of the chapter. So it's like we go from subject A to subject B, then back to subject A, and then to subject B. And that shows us that this entire chapter has a literary unity. And that's important because one of the reasons that most people screw up in interpreting this passage is they just want to jump into... Uh, the, that last section of verse 14 down to 26 as an independent whole, without relating it to its context of the entire chapter, and relating that to the main theme, which is hearing and doing. So I'm just I, I just want to remind you of that and, and set that up, because as we get into some of the details, I don't want to lose the lose the uh, forest because we're looking at the leaves so intensely. So we'll be going back and forth now. Let's set all of this up against a backdrop, a doctrinal backdrop for understanding the, uh, the spiritual life. Let's see if I've got the um, proper overhead here. No, I don't. Okay, spiritual life relates to the plan of God. The plan of God begins at the cross. At the cross, we accept Jesus Christ as our Savior. This is phase one, Justification. Justification, salvation. Salvation is used in three senses in the Scripture. In phase one, it is salvation from the eternal penalty of sin. Salvation from the lake of fire. That's how we normally want to use the word saved. When you say, are so-and-so saved in American churches, we think that means that you're going to go to heaven. But that's not how the Bible uses the word saved. It does in some senses, but it has a lot of different nuances. The word sozo which we translate saved, means to deliver. Sometimes it means deliverance from a disease with a sense of healing. Sometimes it means deliverance from eternity in the lake of fire. Sometimes it means salvation in the spiritual life, being saved from the presence uh, of sin, which is um, the power of sin in in phase two. And this is sanctification, salvation. This is the subject In James' epistle, he's talking to believers. So, it's obvious that he's not talking about justification because these folks are already justified. They're already believers. So, he's talking about living the spiritual life so that you can be free from the power of the sin nature and have maximum stability and happiness and joy in life, especially in the midst of adversity. That's his subject, and we can't lose sight of that. And then there is... Phase three, which is uh, glorification, salvation, when we are saved from the uh, presence of sin, and we have a glorified body, and there is no more sin nature, and so we're saved from the presence of sin. That is the overall plan of God. Now, we've broken that down in another chart, and I need to learn how to make this a, a whatever it is, a pick file or gift file or whatever, so that we can. I want to put this out on the website. Um, What happens is you enter it at salvation at the cross. Now, this is we've handed this out before, so everybody ought to have a copy in their Bible. If not, we'll print some more. You start off at salvation, phase one. Then you hit tests of doctrine. That's James 1, 2 through 4. You hit those tests of doctrine, and you have an opportunity to exercise your volition, either positive or negative. Either apply doctrine or reject doctrine at that point. Now, this is the doctrine that you've already stored in your soul and metabolized or assimilated into your thinking. When you're filled with the Holy Spirit and you're operating up here in this area, the flowchart produces divine good. Divine good is the, only the production of God, the Holy Spirit, and is that which has eternal value. It also produces life. You see, the concept of life in the New Testament is not just of eternal life, it's not just eternal life, unending existence, but it has to do with quality of life. Jesus said, I didn't come like a thief to steal and destroy. I came to give life, that is eternal life, unending life, and to give life abundantly. Now, some people go to the cross and all they get is eternal life. And they say to heck with it after that and they never go anywhere on doctrine. They have a miserable life. They never grow. They never learn. And they never experience the life that God has for them. And that's why we're here is to experience that quality of life that God has for us and then according to Romans 12, 1 and 2, it produces evidence that God's will is good and faithful and perfect. That, in turn, produces steadfast endurance. As we are persistent in the midst of the trials, it produces endurance. And endurance, according to James 1, 2 through 4, has its result in maturity. This is the process. Now, when we're negative and we're operating in carnality, then we're down here in this bottom flow chart. We produce sin, human good, and that leads to temporal death. That was the subject that James talked about back in James chapter 1, verses 14 through 15. And when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. That leads to weakness and instability, emotional, spiritual weakness, emotional instability. We're miserable in life. There's no person on earth more miserable than the carnal Christian. There's nothing in life that will make you more miserable than to end up in carnality, to fail to take in God's Word and to fail to grow. And this leads to spirit, if it continues without, uh, confession of sin and grace recovery, then it leads to spiritual regression and a hardened heart. And the result of this is that if you stay in maturity and filled under the filling of the Holy Spirit, advance to spiritual maturity, then at the judgment seat of Christ, there are rewards and there is inheritance in the kingdom. If there is failure and you live a life where you produce maximum human good and no divine good, then at the judgment seat of Christ, there is loss of rewards and shame at the judgment seat of Christ. That's the overall concept. If you understand this dynamic, this is what the spiritual life is all about. And we just have to go over this again and again and again. And that's what we're talking about in this section of James because James is telling us here that the priority in our life needs to be learning doctrine and making that a part of our souls so that our souls, our life, can be saved. That goes back to verse 21, which gives us the prerequisite and the priority of doctrine. The prerequisite is confession and staying in fellowship, taking off the sin that so easily besets us, and then in humility, receiving the word. And that concept of humility there... as the the opposite of arrogance, is crucial to interpreting verse 5, which is where we find ourselves now. So let's review our immediate context briefly, and then we'll get into verse 5 tonight. And I doubt that we get much beyond that. Verse 1, My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism, or prejudice. In other words, don't let a false scale of values from human viewpoint dictate your personal relationships. Don't judge people because of their economic status, because of their racial status, because of their background, because of their ethnicity, or anything like that. That's not the issue. The issue is that every single human being, believer or unbeliever, smart, educated, uh, moron, low-IQ, no matter what their physical condition, their economic condition, their educational condition, uh, they are all created in the image, in likeness, in the image of God, even though that image is marred because of being fallen. And then he gives the illustration of the way the, uh, the usher operates on a human viewpoint scale of values, and he treats the, um, the poor man who comes in in dirty clothes, and the poor man is positive to doctrine, he's advancing in spiritual maturity, and the wealthy guy is maybe not even a believer, persecutes them, and he gives them all kinds of honor and seats him in the special place in the congregation and treats him with all kinds of deference and respect. And then he just ignores the, uh, the impoverished street person that comes in. And so he asks the question in verse 4, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? And then verse 5, he's going to drive home the doctrinal point. He starts off with the (coughs) uh, aorist uh, active imperative of Akuo. Now that ought to make some sense to some of us who have been studying along in this. Back in verse 19, we had the command, be quick to hear. And the Greek word for hearing is Akuo. Looks like this in the Greek, A-K-O-U-O. And back there we had the uh, uh, present active infinitive of purpose there, that we are to make that a priority in our life. And here we have the aorist active imperative. Now, I keep going over this to show that grammar has an important significance to our understanding of Scripture. This is something that very few people are aware of, and the more I dig into some of these mandates in James, the more I'm overwhelmed with how little is done with them. I spent um, dragged myself out of bed this afternoon and looked through my foggy glaze at my computer for a while and did some syntactical studies on in James with a new... Uh, I've got this new program that's really slick. I mean, it does some phenomenal things for you. I mean, this is the kind of stuff that you'd beat your brains out doing in two or three days, and it just performs these searches like that. So it's pretty slick. It just takes forever to learn how to, what you're supposed to do to make the thing work. When you get into James, you, you look at this, and there's an importance going on here with your imperatives. There are, and I've mentioned this before, there are second-person plural imperatives, and there are third person third-person singular imperatives. Now, the second person plural is addressed as a whole. This is, these are general mandates addressed to y'all. The third person singular would be translated... We don't really have a third person singular imperative in English. So it's usually translated in what grammarians call a jussive, which is let this one be or let him be, let him be this or let him do this kind of idea but it's it's addressed in and these are more uh specific mandates related to carrying out the general mandate uh emphasized in the second person singular now there's also a shift here going on between present imperatives and aorist imperatives now I don't want to lose anybody here so y'all get your yawns out of the way kind of shrug your shoulders and and, and just kind of listen and you'll catch the catch the result of this. The aorist, the basic idea of the aorist imperative, it's a command in which the action is is viewed as a whole without regard to the internal makeup of that action. What that means, it's not necessarily emphasizing a point in time or continuation or anything, it's just viewing the action as a whole. Most aorist imperatives, according to the grammar, are either ingressive aorists, ingressive to begin to do something, or they're constative aorists. Now, I'll come back to what a constative means in a minute. The ingressive means to begin an action with a stress on the urgency of the action. And that would be start listening. That would be the idea here. Begin to listen. And there's a subtle implication there that you haven't been listening. Now, Notice, we're back to our key word here, the thematic word for this whole section, being quick to hear. And what have we learned already? That hearing, mean, real hearing means application. So he's bringing our attention back to this with this imperative saying, okay, listen up, concentrate on this. Now, an aggressive would mean a stress on the urgency of the action, start doing something you haven't been doing. The constitutive is a, pay attention to this. It's a solemn or categorical mandate without stressing the beginning or continuation of the act, but on the solemn urgency of the act, it is to make this your highest priority. Now, that's just what the grammar means. Whatever is in the aorist imperative is in it make this your highest priority. So, this just feeds back into our case here that we're to make hearing the highest priority. In our life. And that means taking a little time and doing a little self-evaluation. We saw that we're supposed to look into the Word of God like a mirror, hold it up for a little self-evaluation. Now, there's a lot of times when people have a lot of different hobbies. Men like sports. They can give you all kinds of sports statistics, but there aren't that many male Christians who can tell you where to find a verse like, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They can get on the computer and walk you through Netscape, Navigator, or Microsoft Explorer and go all kinds of places all over, the, all over the world in terms of the internet, but they can't walk you through ten verses in Scripture or five verses in Scripture to show how to be saved. Now, that ought to be convicting. We just don't make the Word of God the priority that it ought to be in our lives. And that's what this is saying. The aorist imperative at this point is intruding on the territory, according to the grammar, of the present imperative with this aggressive, progressive nuance to begin and continue doing something. That's the bottom line. This is important. It's solemn. It's to make this the highest priority and to start doing it and make it a continuative continuation in your life. Now, We need to ask, how does this, all of this grammar that seems like it's up there in the cloud somewhere, relate to what James is telling us? One thing we need to remember is there is an important stylistic shift in James' writing. Every time he shifts gears and he uses his second person plural, he's making a new point. And it grabs our attention. Now, the last time that James used an aorist imperative... Second person plural was back in 121. So look back there. We had in, in verse 21 therefore, and then we had an adverbial participle of attendant circumstance, and an adverbial participle of attendant circumstance has the function of stating the prerequisite to the main verb. That's the idea there, and we studied that back in verse 21. The main verb is receive. That was our aorist imperative there receive the word now what did we just learn about aorist imperatives they state something that's supposed to be the highest priority so back so james is consistent here the highest priority in verse 21 is to receive the word and then he the next time he uses an aorist imperative is to say listen up to the word concentrate on the word so we have the priority back in verse 21 that it is the word that you are to receive and that is what is able to save the life or save the soul in terms of phase 2 salvation. So in between there were two uh, two other imperatives in between and these were present uh, tense imperatives. And there is one in verse 22 and it's Poorly translated in verse 22, but prove yourselves doers of the word, and that's not the word in the Greek at all. The word in the Greek was the verb genomai, which we studied back in John 1, 1 quite extensively, and it means to become something that wasn't there before. You are to become appliers. Of the word and not merely hearers. That's that transformation that takes place as a result of studying God's word. So you have the general mandate uh, stating the priority back in 21, and then the continuation, the begin-continue concept in verse 22 with the present imperative to begin um, this transformation, begin becoming appliers. Of the word in verse 22. And then the next time we have an imperative. The next mandate is in one. And remember these mandates are not options in the spiritual life. These are absolutes. If you're going to go anywhere in the spiritual life. You have to fulfill the mandates. Under the filling of God the Holy Spirit. Chapter 2 verse 1. Do not hold uh, your faith. Your doctrine that is. And with prejudice. So there we had the, the verb ek- from echo Ekete, which is from the Greek echo e c h o to have and to hold, and that is the doctrine that you are holding onto in your soul that has taken up residence and is providing the stronghold for your soul. You don't hold that with uh, in an attitude of prejudice. So you're holding on to doctrine. So all of these verbs, all of these imperatives in this set section, are emphasizing what the priority of doctrine in your life that you're not going to get anywhere none of us will get anywhere in the spiritual life unless we make learning doctrine and applying doctrine the highest priority in our life so the verse 5 begins with the mandate to concentrate to listen and we know that listening isn't just having our eardrums tickled but includes the concept of application and he says My beloved brethren, and this tells us that he's addressing believers here. The entire congregation viewing them as believers, not as unbelievers. So we're talking about phase two doctrine, spiritual life doctrine, not phase one salvation doctrine. My beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? My, my, now we come into a real hermeneutical mare's nest here. What in the world are we talking about? phrase here relates to the poor of this world. Now, who are the poor? That's the question we need to ask. What does he mean by the poor? See, if you read James at a very superficial level, you're going to really get screwed up and confused about a lot of things in life. I mean, you're just going to come away from this with certain kinds of socialistic ideas and and, uh, welfare state ideas and and, uh, uh, works religion ideas and all kinds of screwy concepts. That's why you have to get into the original and really take this thing apart word for word and be very, very careful or you're just going to have all kinds of heresy. And when you read some of the commentaries that are out there, you realize the absolute inconsistencies in what they say. On the one hand, they'll articulate a gospel of faith and anti-works, and then when they deal with these same men deal with James, they just come out with, "Well, this is talking about works," and it is just I mean, it just it just nauseating to read this this kind of literature and to see how how far scholarship has gotten away from the truth of the gospel of grace. So we need to ask the question and be very logical in our analysis. Who are the poor? Well, there are only two options for defining the word poor. The first option is that we can define the word poor economically, in terms of pure economics. Now, one might sit back and scratch their head and say, well, well, Pastor, this seems like that would be the option because we've been talking about economics back in the... Uh, Previous illustration, the poor man who comes in in dirty clothes, he has nothing, obviously, he's minus all the details of life, versus the rich man. I'd say, well, yes, it seems that way at first glance from the context, but we have to realize that there's been a, a although it's not a major shift away completely, there's been enough of a shift because of the, uh, the mandate and the stylistic shift Every time James goes to that second person plural, you've got a major shift going on in his argument. And you have to pay attention to that. So there's been a little bit of a shift here and we have to watch the style. And every time he uses this phrase, my beloved brethren, he's moving on to the next point. So he's made one part of his point by the illustration. Now he's moving on. So it's very possible that he's going to use this word patakos in a very different sense here. And so... If we take it that way, though, we have to scratch our heads and say, well, if we define it economically, then what that's really saying is that poverty in and of itself becomes a spiritual virtue. Now, that's going to appeal to the ascetics out there. who uh, That's their trend of their sin nature, and they just want to uh, (coughs) give up so that they can impress God with what they've given up and how they're suffering for Jesus. But the implication of that is that... that being poor and giving away all your money and having nothing and living as a homeless person somehow impresses God and is necessary for acquiring divine blessing. Now, that just goes against everything else in the Scriptures. I mean, you look at people like Abraham and Job who were wealthy, extremely wealthy men. In the New Testament, you have believers like Joseph of Arimathea who were very, very wealthy. Others who were probably moderately wealthy were Barnabas. Uh, I think Peter had a very successful fishing business, commercial operation. Uh, Nowhere in the Bible is there any condemnation of money or material gain or wealth in and of itself. It's the love of money that is the root of all evil and not money. And it is uh, through financial means that, that much is accomplished for the gospel. That does not necessarily justify abusing it are being materialistic, as some people might rationalize it, but it does mean that there's nothing inherently wrong with wealth or inherently right in poverty. So, obviously, we've excluded economics as a definition here because it would just lead to an absurd theology, that it is those who are on welfare that are going to be heirs of the kingdom. So, the other option is that when... We get into verse 5, James has shifted the nuance of poor from economic poverty to spiritual poverty or humility. Now, that makes sense contextually. Remember, he's talking about listening and hearing. Listening, God chose who? The humble. That's what this would then mean. Did not God choose the humble of this world to be rich in faith? Now, what did he say in verse 21? That we are to receive the word in humility so there's a parallel there and there's a contextual parallelism that is quite significant but there's even a more significant parallel than that which goes back to the teaching of Jesus now who was James older brother it was our Lord now he was not a believer while the Lord was walking on the face of the earth but he probably heard much of what the Lord taught and there are a lot of similarities and parallels between what James says in this epistle and the Sermon on the Mount. So let's turn back into the Gospels for a minute and examine a couple of passages, and in the process we'll just learn a couple of things about about Bible study and comparing Scripture with Scripture. So turn first to Luke chapter 6, verse 20. Luke chapter 6, verse 20. And Jesus is speaking here. This is the Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount. Turning his gaze on his disciples, he began to say, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Let's read the context, because a lot of this is related. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when men hate you and ostracize you and cast insults at you, and spurn your name as evil for the sake of the Son of Man. Be glad in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for in the same way their fathers used to treat the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you are receiving your comfort in full. Woe, Three woes here. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for in the same way their fathers used to treat the false prophets. Now the thrust of all of this is not is dealing with spiritual issues and spiritual attitudes, and it's not dealing with physical overt things. The hungering is hungering for righteousness. Those of you who hunger for righteousness, who are who are positive to doctrine, who are applying doctrine who want to know the word of God, who realize that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, you shall be satisfied. God will satisfy you and will feed you with doctrine. Blessed are you who weep now, that is, who are sorrowful over, over sin and its consequences in their life for sorrow over the world and its situation in the lost. It can include a number of attitudes. Jesus wept when he looked on Jerusalem because of their negative volition. So it's not wrong to have a sense of sorrow and sadness over the lost and over those who are negative volition. It's real easy to say, well, they're just negative. They're getting what they deserve. But Jesus didn't have that kind of attitude. He was indeed truly sorrowful and wept for Jerusalem because of their rejection of him. And then we go on, blessed are you when men hate you, that is for the gospel, and ostracize you and cast insults at you, and spurn your name as evil for the sake of the Son of Man. And and what do you get for all of that? There is reward. So we're not talking about salvation here, getting into heaven. We're talking about position in heaven, reward. And we'll clarify this now by comparing those scriptures with Matthew chapter 5. So turn back to the first gospel in the New Testament, Matthew chapter 5. Now, I'm not going to do an in-depth analysis of the Sermon on the Mount. There are all kinds of hermeneutical issues related to this, but there are general principles here that apply in any dispensation, even if the primary thrust of the message is not intended for the church age. There is still, just as the Old Testament has underlying doctrinal principles that are applicable today, the same is true for the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5 verse 3 starts off, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Now, wait a minute. Luke just said, Blessed are the poor. So now we have a new phrase. That's going to help us in understanding the concept of poor, isn't it? It's poor in the spirit. Now, now we have another job. We have this phrase in numity looks like this in the Greek. It is en plus the dative of numa. Now we have Several problems we have to address here. First of all, we have to figure out what Numa means. Does this refer to the human spirit? Does this refer to the Holy Spirit? Or does it have another connotation? Then we have to look at the significance of the whole phrase. Is this an, an N plus the plus the dative of means or agency indicating uh, by means of the human spirit or by means of the Holy Spirit? Is it a a locative dative, which would mean in the sphere of uh, the Spirit or in the sphere of the uh, Holy Spirit or or just exactly what does this mean? Now, the third meaning, which I didn't isolate here, is the, the meaning that this has in this passage. The word pneuma can relate to a number of different Things Its basic core meaning is breath or wind, breath or wind. That's what pneuma means. Now, it has come to be used for that which is unseen, both in terms of the Holy Spirit and the human spirit. And that's demonstrable from a number of different passages. But it also has to do with thinking. And according to the lexicon, it means an attitude or disposition reflecting the way in which a person thinks about or deals with some matter. So, you know, sometimes you see people and, and um, they talk about the spirit of pride or spirit of arrogance, and recently it's become popular in some circles to try to take that word spirit to mean a demon every time they see it. And so they want to translate that, that you've got a demon of pride or a demon of arrogance, and that's the, that's the uh, reason you've got problems, and now you've got to get rid of that demon And that's just absurd and shows their ignorance of the Greek. It has to do with an attitude or disposition. And in those passages, when it talks about having a spirit of anger, it talks about having an attitude or disposition to attitude, a way of thinking. And so here we have an attitude or disposition that is related to poor. Poor, in, and the whole phrase here is an idiom for humility. Blessed are those who have a humble attitude. Have an attitude or, or way of thinking in terms of humility, an attitude related to humility. Blessed are those who are humble, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In other words, the arrogant one is not going to inherit the kingdom. And then it goes on, Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. And the subject all through here is talking about inheritance. And this brings us back to a subject that we have covered on Sunday morning in our Galatians series and is so crucial to understanding um, many issues today and what is going on in James because let's turn back to James chapter 2. What we find here is that J- what James says in James 2.5 is almost a paraphrase of what Jesus said. He said, God chose the poor of this world and if we take that as humble... God chose the humble of this world to be rich in faith, and what? Heirs of the kingdom, which He has promised to whom? To those who love Him. Now, what we have seen in understanding inheritance is there are two categories of inheritance. And we need to evaluate this and go over this again and review it under the doctrine of heirship. Or the doctrine of inheritance. So let's start off with point number one in the doctrine of inheritance. And that's by looking at the basic meaning of the word kleronomos. K-L-E-R-O-N-O-M-O-S And the meaning of kleronomos, the core meaning is inheritance, possession, or property. Inheritance. Possession or property. So to inherit the kingdom means to possess the kingdom. To possess the kingdom. Sometimes this refers to a birthright, which someone enters into by virtue of their physical descendancy, their physical sonship, in Galatians 4.30 and Hebrews 1.4. It certainly gets noisy in here when it rains outside, That's not rain? Is that hail? Oh, good. Is it time to get our cars out of the parking lot? and Do what? It's too late now. The storm is coming. Okay. Um, This refers to a natural birthright which one enters into by virtue of their natural sonship. Galatians 4.30 and Hebrews 1.4. It can refer to property as a gift in contrast to a reward in Hebrews 1.14 and 6.12. And it refers to property received on condition of obedience to certain conditions, First Peter 3.9. And sometimes it refers to a reward that is based on meeting certain conditions. Now, that's the meaning of inheritance. It can be a possession that is passed on by birthright, or it can refer to something that is given as a reward. That's what you need to learn from that. It's a different concept in, in, in the ancient world than what we have today. Point number two. Jesus Christ is the heir of all things. Jesus Christ is the heir of all things in Hebrews chapter 1 verse 2. We then enter into inheritance by virtue of our union with Christ. And here we have the top circle indicating our eternal relationship with the Lord. That is a permanent relationship that can never be severed and can never be lost. Christ is the heir of all things, and that goes to point and then point three, inheritance is based on adoption. Adoption occurs at the moment of salvation. We are adopted into the family of God. We become uh, sons of God and are viewed as adult sons, huios, in Galatians 3.29 and 4.1. So, inheritance is related to the top circle blessings, uh, blessings related to positional truth. Passages that cover this are in Romans 8, chapter 16 through 17, which read, If you are your father's son, then you are the father's heir, referring to God the Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit, that we are children of God, and if children, heirs also, heirs of God, and there should be a comma there, watch the punctuation, the original Greek had no punctuation, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. So that passage, Romans 8.17, tells us that there are two categories of inheritance. One is inheritance, heirs of God. The second is joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him. Now, what is James talking about? He's talking about in perseverance and testing, adversity, suffering. If we suffer with him, that is, if we go through adversity testing, evaluation testing, using the doctrine in our soul, just as Christ did, using him as our role model, then the result of that is that we become joint heirs with Christ and we receive rewards for that. Now, back to point three, heirship, inheritance is based on adoption and sonship and positional truth, and this is being an heir of God. Point number four, inheritance is based on the grace promise of the Abrahamic covenant. Galatians 3.29, And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. And we belong to Christ at the moment of salvation. If anyone be in Christ, he is a new creature. All things are passed away. Behold, all things are new. Inheritance, entering into the family of God, Demands eternal life. The Son should have the same kind of life as the Father, so we receive eternal life, Titus 3, 5 through 7. He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out upon us, that is, church age believers, the unique role of God the Holy Spirit in indwelling ministry and filling ministry in this church age, richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that being justified by his grace, we might be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And there we have the subjunctive mood indicating the potentiality of future rewards and future inheritance, once again indicating two categories of inheritance. Point number six, inheritance means to share the destiny of Christ. It means to share the destiny of Christ Christ has an eternal destiny, and we share it as we share his election. And that's the word that's used here, God choosing the poor, ekleg- eklegami, which means um, election, choice. Uh, we are chosen in Christ. By virtue of our faith alone in Christ alone, when we enter into union with Christ, we become part of the elect. Ephesians 1.11, also we have obtained an inheritance Having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will, and also 1 Peter 1 3. Point number seven. Point number six, let me review it. Inheritance means to share the destiny of Christ. Christ has an eternal destiny, and we share that by virtue of his election. Point number seven, inheritance is both a present reality and a future possession. 1 Peter 1 4 and 5 and Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11, 13, and 14. It's a present reality and a future possession. Also, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to His purpose, who works all things after the counsel of His will. In Him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance. So, we have obtained it, so that's part of it, but the rest is contingent. That contingency of that inheritance, those contingent blessings in eternity, are going to be determined by how we live our life today. Point number eight, inheritance means eternal security. 1 Peter 1.4 says that it is an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away. It is ours forever. Point number nine, God the Holy Spirit is a down payment on our inheritance. Ephesians 1.14 Now I'm running out of time so I don't have time to read through all the passages but you need to do that at some time taking a look at these verses. Ephesians 1.14 says that He, the Holy Spirit, is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of His glory. So we have the Holy Spirit now in in indwelling is a seal of our future inheritance. Now, point number 10 relates to the problem, which is that some passages speak of inheritance as a permanent possession based on faith alone in Christ alone, and other passages seem to make inheritance contingent upon certain behavior. Uh, For example, um, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 10 uh, indicates that if you... Participate in certain kinds of carnal activity, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. So, there seems to be two nuances. One is an inheritance related to salvation, and one an inheritance related to, uh, as a result of our obedience in this life. Uh, Ephesians five five says, For this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Colossians 3.24 says, Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance, it is the Lord Christ whom you serve. So there is this distinction. It is viewed as a reward for obedience or disobedience. Uh, we can either point number 11, We either inherit the kingdom, Ephesians 5.5, 1 Corinthians 6.9-10, or there is inheriting salvation, Hebrews 1.14. This is what was indicated in Romans 8.17. An heir of God is one thing. A joint heir with Christ is a different category. Uh, Just as Christ inherits the kingdom in Psalm 2.8-9, due to his loyalty to God the Father, Hebrews one eight through nine quote Psalm forty five six through seven the joint heirs with Christ will also inherit the kingdom. And point number thirteen thus the kingdom has been promised to those who love God, and not all believers love God. That's in John fourteen twenty one through twenty four and our passage in James two five. God has chosen the poor of this world, that is, those who are humble. What do the humble do? They take in the word of God and make it a priority in their life to apply it. They were to be rich in doctrine and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to whom? To those who love him. Not all believers love him. Now, this takes us back to our initial uh, chart to just kind of tie it all together. When we start off in the Christian life, you have two options. When you hit tests of doctrine, you can either apply the word and operate up in this area, in this flow chart, producing divine good, experiencing the abundant life of joy and happiness and stability, producing evidence for for God's will, evidence in the uh, appeal trial of Satan, producing steadfast endurance, leading to maturity in the adult spiritual life, and then when you die and you're face to face with the Lord and you're at the judgment seat of Christ, the result is rewards and inheritance. But those who are failures in the spiritual life, who do not advance spiritually, who do not make doctrine the priority in their life, who are not at Bible class on a regular basis, so they're constantly being reminded and to refocus on spiritual things and eternal truth, they will operate in the sin nature producing sin, human good, and temporal death, leading to weakness, uh, spiritual weakness, emotional instability, spiritual regression, a hardening of the heart, and at the judgment seat of Christ they will lose rewards and there will be shame at the judgment seat of Christ. And they they will be heirs of God but not joint heirs with Christ. Heirs of God means that they will have a resurrection body that after the initial shame at the judgment seat of Christ, there will be no more sorrow, no more tears, no more pain, the old things are passed away. But they will not enter into all of the blessings that come as being joint heirs with Christ and being a possessor of the kingdom. They will live in the kingdom, but they will not possess the kingdom. Now, this whole concept of inheritance is is very important, and I've just had time to sort of scratch the surface of it as time goes by. Uh, We will develop it some more, both in in Galatians and in James. And the interesting thing that I think is that in the coming weeks, we're going to be pummeled with the doctrine of love. On Sunday morning, we're going to learn how God the Father loves the Son. In about two weeks on Sunday morning, we are going to come to Galatians, I think it's 5.11, which is a quote of Leviticus 19.18. Next week, in the next week, we will come to Galatians. I mean, James two eight, which is a quote of Leviticus nineteen eighteen. So I think the Lord is going to be pummeling us with what love is all about in the next couple of weeks, both in terms of love for God the Father. Because remember, inheritance is for those who love God. So we need to understand the love of God the Father, because that is what motivates us into the upper echelons of spiritual maturity. And that is always going to be indicated, and a barometer of that is, I think, our unconditional love and impersonal love for all mankind. So we'll be looking at that in detail in the next few weeks if you want to run and hide and don't have the spiritual courage for it. But for those of you who do and want to be fanatics of doctrine, we'll see you on Sunday morning with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for the word that we have studied tonight and for the way that it has taught us and challenged us with the fact that we may not all be joint heirs with Christ, but that is up to our volition and making your word the priority in our life and its application the priority in our lives. And we pray that you would challenge us with these things in the coming week. In Christ's name, amen.